I, I think one thing that everybody has started talking about is, is that capital has dried up, but it's not just monetary capital. It's also social capital. Being able to actually say, hey, you decision maker at company A, will you spend some time with this startup? And they're going to go back and say, I have two problems. I have no other problems anymore because if I don't solve these two problems, I don't have a business. Hey, this is the Built in Seattle podcast. I'm Adam Schoenfeld. On this show, I chat with Seattle's best entrepreneurs, operators, and investors about how they think and how they operate. I'm here with the one, the only, Aviel Ginsberg. He's a general partner at Founders Co-op, and welcome back to the Built in Seattle podcast, social distancing version. Welcome, Aviel. Thanks for having me. Good to talk with you. People who know both of us know that we have some history together, don't we? <laughs> A little bit. We've, we've known each other uh, for quite a while, and we, we may have even done one or two things together. So Aviel and I were uh, co-founders of a company called Simply Measured in recent history. It's been a few years now, actually. Yeah, I think we can now start calling it a, a previous cycle company. Like, I sort of always wanted to have that, like, dot-com bubble crash, like, pre-company, but now I think, like, we're really from a different era. Well, we're going to talk about this shift that we're going through. And one thing I have admired about you since our days of working together is that you are very good at forming unconventional points of view. And so I'm very excited about this interview to hear some of your view on what's going to happen next. For, for sure. Yeah, I, I think that is one of the things I enjoy about being in, in a, a general partner role rather than a founder role is that that type of thinking, I, I don't know, is, is a little bit more... <laughs> appreciate it. So just for people who don't know, what is Founders Co-op and what do you guys do? Yeah, so Founders Co-op is a seed stage fund based here in Seattle that focuses exclusively on seed and pre-seed stage companies in the Pacific Northwest. So currently it's two of us. My partner, Chris DeVore, was the original founder of the fund in 2008. And we're currently investing out of a $25 million fund and writing half a million to 750K checks into really early stage companies in, in the region. We're completely industry agnostic. We love, we love anything that's created by great people, though we, we are you know, afraid of, of hardware. But pretty much anything that has some software involved, we're, we're, we're down to, to, to you know, get to know you and, and get weird with it. And you know, in, interestingly, like what's, what's been so fun about this for me is, I mean, you know this, our first money into Simply Measured back when we were Untitled Startup was Founders Co-op. So one of the fun things whenever I'm, I'm talking with anyone in this role is that, you know, I, I get to have lived that, that full journey. And when people are like, what's Founders Co-op about? I'm like, well, let me give you the perspective as a founder that Founders Co-op funded and as somebody that's trying to pitch you on taking my money. On taking, uh, my money. That's right. Yeah, you've seen both sides of it. What's been hard about making that transition? Because I always think of you as such a great product thinker, designer, operator, and now you've gone to the complete other side of the table as an investor. What's been the hardest thing about that transition? Oh, God. And I, let me just say, like, it, it hasn't just been hard, but I definitely, when I started, started out doing this, I made some bad investments. The, the reality, Red, is I think as a, as a founder and, and with my sort of product thinking, like I get really excited about the opportunity, what could be built, like way too much in the weeds imagining myself as the founder and the CEO. And I think that led in some cases to me realizing that that wasn't really what I was investing in. Like I was not the one running this company. 
even if I thought that I knew what the right thing to do was, the founder wasn't necessarily going to do that. And also they definitely shouldn't be listening to me um, because I'm not the one that's actually in the weeds every day and has all the context. So I think step one was understanding that my product superpowers were no longer relevant. And I think additionally realizing that, you know, I was not critical path. I was not the one who was actually really having you know, meaningful impact on what the company was building. So that transition to it being a lot more about investing in people and, you know, spending my time and my energy, you know, in influencing rather than directing. And, and you know me, you know my style. Like it took a while for me to, to adapt to that. But I, I think at first I, I, didn't, I didn't really. Yeah, I could see that being hard, especially for somebody like you who can get so into the weeds and to the point of moving pixels around. And like, that's not why they took your money and that's not why they want to work with you. Yeah, I, I think I remember like doing some some diligence on, you know, some companies a, a while back. So I've, I've been, you know, full-time with Founders Co-op for a little over three years now, but for, you know, two to three years prior, I was a venture partner you know, back when we were still running Simply Measured. And the, the diligence and the ways that I would interact with companies now were so different where I would like totally, I mean, I, I remember actually like giving feedback on like some code that somebody had written in the front end, you joke about a pixel. Like I had done that. I've been like, have you thought about making that an SVG instead of a ping? They're like, wow, I've I've never heard that from a a VC before. Yeah. And and I, for some folks, they found it super endearing. Like, wow, somebody who's really in the weeds understands. Um, But then the flip side was like, okay, when is, when is this guy going to stop with these questions? So making your transition into investing easier now you're investing in an environment where we have a pandemic going on and people can't go to work and there's a whole host of things. And we were texting the other day. One thing people who know us also know is that I'm horrible at cursing and you're an epic cursor. (laughs) And you texted me something to the effect of this shit is so fucked for singularly focused early stage companies. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, you, What's so amazing, right, is when people look at at companies that are now, you know, like prolific generational businesses, they really forget how, you know, brittle and simple they were when they were just getting started. What you don't realize is like when you go through that phase, like part of what gets you to that escape velocity is by being like really, really good at one thing. Like you you know this so well, which is like a company can be terrible at like 90% of what it does. But if it is like so excellent at that 10%, it can be massively successful. You know, I, I think we definitely live through some of that and simply measured. But the reality, right, is like if it's that 10% that gets suddenly hit by a black swan event like this, suddenly all you're left with is a bunch of shit that doesn't work. Because, you know, it's not like you're this, this sort of mature, diversified business with all these systems that, well, if this one flexes, then the other one takes over. If this one falls, we can always do this. Like, you, you have to put all of your eggs in one basket. And that can look like taking crazy amounts of venture, scaling your burn so aggressively so that you can reach escape velocity in a market. It can mean choosing to like double down on a specific product line. So if you're one of those companies that is in one of those singular moments where you just double down on the thing that's really working, and then it's that thing that suddenly is, is like unworkable because of something like a pandemic, like you, you really go from having the whole world at your fingertips to just like fucked. Totally. I mean, and it's interesting because that, that narrow focus could be 
uh, a product line, or it could be even a part of your business, one function in your business. You might just be really good at marketing and you're horrible at everything else operationally, right? So it's, it's multidimensional, that, that sort of challenge that you face and that, that focus, how it exposes you. Yep, and if you hit just, just the wrong place at the wrong time, like looking across the portfolio, you know, there certainly are a bunch of businesses where they, they did have that problem where suddenly their go-to-market doesn't work. You know, their product can't be used because of a, a stay-at-home quarantine. But, you know, I think the vast majority of the companies that are going through rocky times are ones who things were and in many ways still are going well, but they, they had a really poorly timed fundraise. So they had previously ramped up growth, like numbers are looking great, but then suddenly they need to put more gas in the tank because they're trying to stay at that speed or even increase velocity. And suddenly the markets are, are saying, hey, we, we don't know how to value your business. I'm not writing checks right now. And you, know, you, you find yourself in a spot where it, it isn't that something has affected you directly, but that through the capital markets, you're suddenly in a really, really difficult spot. And I think that, that affects pretty much any business that you know, has had to raise within the past one to two months ago into the next six. Just to, to get into your point of view on this situation a little bit more, what, what do you see as the factors about the environment we're in that are most impacting the early stage companies, right? Is it, is it the pandemic itself? Is it the social distancing? Is it the uncertainty? Like it's such a multi-layered problem where where do you see the impact coming from or does it even matter i think there's there's some interesting t- stuff to unpack here you know one one of it is that in the early stage a lot of let's let's take like a b2b business for example like how you get going is because somebody takes a chance on you whether it's through a personal connection or you know just you rocked that demo off of an intro like you somebody was nice for you somebody said i'm going to carry you on my back for a little while um, and in a moment like this, people, people can't do that. You know, I, I think one thing that everybody has started talking about is, is that, you know, capital has dried up, but it's not just monetary capital. It's also social capital. You know, being able to actually say, hey, you, decision maker at company A, will you spend some time with this startup? And they're going to go back and say, I have two problems. I have no other problems anymore because if I don't solve these two problems, I don't have a business. If you're an early stage company, the likelihood that you can actually solve one of those, you know, two critical problems is, is, is much lower. So I think that is one problem, which is that, you know, even if you're doing something awesome, companies just don't have time for you. So that's one challenge that you have for sure. I think the other is, is just in, you know, capitalizing your business, you know, as, as an investor, you know, you, I'm not saying that, that I do this, I actually try my best to not do this, but like if you're going to do your job really well by the letter of the law, you want to be as close to the line of investing as possible without ever going over it. Like you're trying to earn a free option because every minute that you haven't yet written the check, that's more data that you have about how that company is doing, how they will do, what will happen. So right now where the market is, where everyone's just waiting, if you are that early stage company, like good luck generating FOMO. I know some people are still able to do it, but like the traditional playbook doesn't work anymore. And I think, you know, you combine an inability to convince investors to invest right now, as well as an inability to get companies that are not already working with you to invest in a relationship. And you're finding yourself in a tough spot where you're saying, okay, well, what do I do right now? Um, in a lot of cases, if, if companies are lucky and are well enough capitalized at the early stage, 
they're investing and doubling and tripling down on products so that when the time does come that people are willing to take those meetings, the, the product is significantly better than, than where it would be. But if you're in that point in time where you're like, hey, we've got the right product, what we need is customer retention, that you're, you're just not going to get it. It's interesting how the psychology of the early adopter customer parallels so closely the psychology of the investor of like trying to get them to come on board and be part of the mission early. And in both cases, you're just, you're fighting such an uphill battle on that. I mean, there's so many obstacles, right? If you're an early stage operator, I'm curious for you to put your operator hat on knowing all of that, knowing all of the challenges in the next, let's say six to 12 months. If you're in a position where you are going to need to raise some money in that time frame, what can you be doing to get yourself set up for that? Especially if you are an early stage company and you know a lot of things are unproven. I think there is, you know, num- number one, just say to everyone that hope is not a strategy. Like if you are hoping to get lucky so that you'll be able to survive a raise, like you're doing something wrong. Like you need to make the hard decisions now about how you make sure that you actually have enough runway to execute on a plan. But then picking the plan is, is probably even trickier because you don't really know what does success look like anymore? Like historically, you could say, you know, if you hit these milestones, then this will happen and this will happen. But all of that is up in the air. But ultimately, as an early stage company, you shouldn't let that panic you because you you are so early and nimble that you can change almost everything about what you're doing. And that includes everything from product all the way to even the, the, the people on the team. Like you, you have an opportunity and point in time. And I think another thing to consider too is that the whole world is getting turned upside down. So really any forward progress is something that an investor or a customer is going to look at as exceptional because they're going to see the struggles that they have and say, wow, how did this company manage to push, to push forward and have some positive momentum during this time when everything was fucked? And I think that that's ultimately what you need to look for is say like, okay, what is in my control right now? And there probably is something. So you need to be thoughtful about like with the time we have, with the money we have, with the people we have, what can we actually accomplish? And so that's, that's what I would be doing. If it was something where I could look across and say, okay, my current customer isn't buying, but I know that this product is something they will buy eventually. Who are other customers that would buy this right now? Um, if it was something where that wasn't the case, I may say, okay, let's, let's double and triple down on product rather than trying to sell and put a lot more effort into sales and marketing. So at least at the end of this, we can show that here's everything that we accomplished in that interim. But I think really what it is, is like, look, take stock of what you control and be excellent at that. And then wait to see when the time's right for you to be able to sort of turn risk back on and say, okay, what are the things that we can't quite control that we could be able to get some wins out of? Yeah, I like the way you're saying that too. And being honest about what you truly can control versus like you said, you know, adding those next five deals, partial control, there's so many factors that you really can't influence. Well, and and the thing that like really, I don't know, I'm still processing this is, you know, obviously I spent, you know, three years running an accelerator program. So I'm the one pushing companies into what are your weekly KPIs? Like you got to do this. And like, there's this formula for like, come on, get scrappy, just make a hundred phone calls. Then out of those hundred phone calls, you're going to get 50 second meetings. It's going to turn to this and this and this and this. And I think with the uncertainty we have right now, like that process, we don't even know that that works, right? 
Um, I, I think so many, so many early stage founders right now are still falling back on those same, those same behaviors and patterns that they were doing previously and thinking like, oh, you know, it's just going to take a little bit longer or it's going to be a lot harder, but they're still doing the same thing. And I'm, I'm legitimately worried for folks who are going to wait too long before really taking stock of, of what can they control. You know, we have, we have one, one portfolio company. Um, mystery. Uh, what what mystery does is essentially, you know, take you out on a an awesome evening on the town, great meal and experience. I've done a bunch of them. A- amazing way for you to get to explore your your city without having to plan, which I hate doing. But for them, obviously, in a lockdown, their business doesn't exist. If restaurants aren't open, if experiences aren't open, you, you don't exist. But you know, it, it wasn't clear in hindsight what that was going to look like. Like, are we really going to close in all the restaurants? How long are the restaurants going to be closed for? what is this going to look like? And, you know, the conversations I, I had with them early on were like, so what do we do? And initially it's like, okay, maybe we just sort of, you know, double down on, on product right now. Think about our city expansion. Think about like stuff we haven't had the ability to do because now we have the time. Or do we sort of completely pivot the business, build something new and ship it? And they, they did the latter. But when they did it, it was still, you know, a, the, the decision to say we're not going to focus on the current business and we're going to double down on something new was a week and a half before the restaurants were even closed down. Like it was not an obvious decision at the time. But if they had not done that, they wouldn't have been in a sweet spot to be able to release a product to the market to show continued growth. Like the team could have lost sort of momentum. Like you, you don't want that. But at the time, it seemed like a crazy decision. And I think that's what a lot of startups need to do is say, what can I control? Like for them, they couldn't control whether or not the restaurants got closed. They couldn't control even if they were open, if people were going to be comfortable enough to go out and eat. But you know what they could do is they could say, we could invest a bunch of time on building a new product that we know we can ship. And they did that. And I'm completely uh, so, so proud to be working with, with that team. But something that I, I wish more companies were, were doing right now um, yeah, it's you know, an incredible just, story. Having looked at mystery, and I want—I do want to—I want to click down on this. So the yeah. the original thing, can you just describe the like the experience that they got funded on and what the business was built to do? Because I, I I understand that they'll create the night out for you, but can you can you explain it just a little bit more for folks? Yeah, so essentially, like the the experience when I first invested, and it's just an evolution of that was you fill out a form on their website answering some questions but both i did that as well as my partner about what are things that you like what are things that you don't like and what's the price point and when do you want to do this and that's that's pretty much it you know a, a day before you get a text message with some some you know basic information about you know make sure you're wearing closed toed shoes you know we're we're looking forward to seeing you tomorrow and you're like what the hell um, you're like, oh, okay, cool. And then you get the message. It's like your your car will be there at uh, 6 p.m. Be ready. And you get a text and it's like your car is here. And you get you get into a lift. Um, your lift driver has no idea who you are, does not know where you're going. You don't know where you're going. And you just start driving. And then you get a message about a minute before you arrive telling you about where you're going with some recommendations. Um, wow. And so, you know, there, there's multiple stops. It can be everything from you know, a cocktail bar to a boozy pottery event, which I really enjoyed to a fancy restaurant, to a show. Um, And what's been amazing every time for me and part of why I fell in love with this was not only do I not like planning, it's that I also don't know what I like. And what I mean by that is like, I like a lot more than I think I do, right? 
And I just would never put myself into the situation to, to do that. Right. And so this whole thing is built on taking you out into the world and being yes, around other like, people. Like literally the, the magic is in, is an experience and experiences created with you and other people and going out of your comfort zone, which is the opposite of being inside of your apartment or house. So they figured out early, okay, restaurants are going to close. We can't take people to restaurants. We can't take people to venues with other people. And they pivoted. And it sounds like in the pivot, they actually kept that essence of what you're talking about, which is like, I don't know what I like. 100%. But they, they pivoted that to actually work within the context of the world we're in. So now, now what is it? So, so now essentially you'll say, you know, the usual like couple, couple things about yourself, price point, how many meals do you want? And, you know, for if you're an existing customer of the house and existing um, information on you as well, and you will get an awesome meal delivered to you as well as a box that has a whole bunch of interesting stuff that supports local businesses as well as a couple activities for you to do. So don't want to spoil what those are, but they're like awesome, fun things for you to do at home. Like we, we did the last one with my partner and my three-year-old. And so it was fun where we ate together. We did an hour of activities that was something totally new. And if you've, you've been at home for a month with a three-year-old, like you are out of fucking things to do. It entertained him. He went to bed. And then the two of us had several hours of fun stuff to do afterwards. And it, to be honest, like thinking back, that's sort of the only memorable night I've had in the past month. Everything else is just sort of some version of the exact same thing. So I think that's what it captured, which is it was just a singular moment for me to step out of, of my usual life, my usual circumstances, be present with my partner, and also challenge myself to do something new. And that was, and I think that to your point about it captured the essence of what they did. I, I think that's what they were able to accomplish. And the way that they, they did it, it was, was pretty interesting is by talking with their vendors and saying like, what can you help us create here so that we can help keep you open? But you know, how can you get creative? It's been pretty incredible. And I think I mean, to, to be honest, I see this pivot being something that lasts long beyond this pandemic as, as a continued product skew. It's interesting. So the process, they actually went to the supply side, not the demand side to uncover the, the pivot opportunity? They went opportunity. to the supply side and to the PR side to pitch if they would cover a product that did this. That's a great, but that's a great kind of mental model for it, right? To see, can you deliver the service and does it cross the bar for attention in a time when you're competing with, you know, stock market refresh, CNN feed refresh, right? And everybody's kind of inundated with all this stuff. Absolutely. That's incredible. So yeah, people who are listening, check out Mystery and the Mystery Night In. I'm going to try yeah, trymystery.com. Really cool. Trymystery.com. Yeah, that's one of the, and that's a great example of what you mentioned earlier about the early stage being able to just reinvent the business. If you're later along, if you're Peloton, right, and it happens that you deliver on the on demand at home exercise, <laughs> great. You know, if you're Zoom, great. Like behavior change just got accelerated for you. But if you're a bigger company, the thought of completely pivoting is, is yeah, well, not viable. Well, but here's the thing that I think is complex, right? Is anyone who's trying to read the tea leaves right now and think about what does the world really look like in three months, six months, twelve months? I think what you can look at and say is what are the trends that this is accelerated? And I think that's fair. You can think about what are the behaviors that this is, you know, modified over the medium to long term. But I think it's unfair to look at certain things that 
were long lasting potential barriers to businesses being successful that suddenly are gone. And to think that like that all just stays the same. I'll take some of the food delivery things as an example. Like, I don't think that now the world needs a hundred thousand craft food marketplace replacing grocery stores. And I'm an investor in an awesome one, CrowdCow, and they've been doing it long before this. And this has been fantastic for their business. But you know, I, I don't believe that, I think some people are, are leaning too much into things that weren't already a growing trend and are like, this is now the new normal. So I think it's just going to be hard to see what, what all that looks like. And going back to mystery, I think that is a thing where the, their delivery box at home, I think that is something that is a viable product going forward. But there's other certain, certain things that I think just, just aren't. When you think, kind of fast forward, I don't know what the time frame is because none of us do, but let's just call it post-vaccine world. What are the, some of the trends that you think get accelerated from this period of time that we have now or some of the behavior changes or what are some of the things that you're watching? One thing in health and medicine, we've been held back for so long by regulations and issues within the industry that just should not have existed for a long period of time. And I think we're going to move forward at a much more rapid pace towards a better digitally enabled healthcare system. And I think that's, that's a given at this point. And I think people are even willing to make trade-offs around that. It's been really interesting to see state laws around, you know, practicing medicine go away, telehealth regulations loosening. And, you know, I don't think that those are things that turn back on once they turn off. Like jokingly in the same way, once you start allowing restaurants to, you know, sell booze, like externally to customers, like I don't, I don't, I don't see that getting turned off either. Like there's certain things where it's just like, why was this restriction here in the first place? This, this was not something that, that the consumer wanted. And this was not something that was moving us forward. So I think certain trends in digital health, for sure. I think we've only accelerated things around, you know, distributed and digital work. Like I, for a long time, have have not believed that the future is everyone being in one space. Now, I don't think that the future is everyone working at home. That, that's not viable. I, I think a lot of the people who are championing that idea, either one, don't have kids or don't live in an apartment. So, you know, I, I think folks investing in, in digital productivity is something that is a real trend and is something that will continue. But I do not think that everyone working from home is the future. I mean, those, those to me seem like two of the, the larger trends. I think what will be interesting is... What, what's going to happen with, with, with retail and e-commerce? Like there already has been that transition aggressively towards e-commerce, but I think there's a lot of unknowns in what about the shopping experience needs to remain sort of physical and experiential versus what doesn't. And I think the past month, the next couple of months are going to be a really great case study and understanding what are the industries where that really did not matter and we just thought it did versus what are the ones where that really was impactful. So I think th those are three areas that I, I am spending a bunch of time thinking about. But honestly, when I said that like what Founders Co-op does is invest in founders, like I really do mean that. I think going back to like, what are the things as a founder that have been a struggle as an investor? It's honestly to spend like be, be wide but shallow in how I'm thinking about these things. I find that if I try to go too deep on a thesis, I'm not doing my job. I want to find great founders with extremely strong point of views who can educate me. And then I can use my ability to see broadly and pattern match to help make them successful. 
but like I'm never going to be the person who's going to be putting out the 10 page thought piece on here's where this industry is going. If you're this founder building this exact product, please come out and reach me. I will write you a check. I'm not going to make that mistake again. Gotcha. Well, then for people out there who are spotting trends and opportunities that are evolving, then they need to latch onto them and, and you'll be ready to write the check. There's no trend that's that's too crazy either. I was, I was actually having a, a conversation earlier, like what has changed about pitch decks is that you'll get some pitch deck, which is, it's like pretends that none of this is happening. And that's like super jarring and weird. I'm like what is going on in this founder's head? And then you'll get the other pitch deck, which is like, it almost feels like a conspiracy theory, which actually looks super similar to a lot of like the crypto pitches I was getting several years ago about how like the whole world has changed and now's the right time. And here's this, and here's this thing that's going to happen. And I see that one and I'm also like, eh, like, uh-oh. And then there's this beautiful middle pitch, which is like, here is something that is starting to happen. Here's all the directions that it can go. Here's my, here's my thesis, but more importantly, here's my plan for how to evolve as this evolves. Like we know it's changing. I have a strong point of view, but more importantly, I have a strong process to be able to navigate it as it keeps going. And like, I love founders who come at, come at me with things like that. And I think now more than ever is an interesting time for that. And I, and I do think that that is something that when I was a founder, I didn't realize where I thought that what investors really wanted to hear was the founder who knew the future and had every answer and like already was living 10 years in the future. And I think certainly there are certain investors who, who do want that, but that's, that's not what I look for these days. Yeah, that's a, such a great framework is if you're on either of those extremes, you, you seem on one side completely disconnected and on the other side disingenuous, yep. right? And I feel like there's a lot of things that are like that right now. Your content marketing, how you deal with your customers, right? If you ignore this thing, they're going to think you're crazy. But if you come in and say, oh, we were built exactly for a pandemic, they're, they're going to say, come on, man, that, that's not true. It's, it's always this middle ground that you have to find. Totally. Yeah. And that, that is a, and I think you mentioned marketing. And I think for marketing right now, it's an, it's an especially tricky time. You know how <laughs> I, I would not want to be a marketer right now. I'll tell you that much. So where are you getting inspiration from during this time? Like mentors, books, people that you're following or reading, how are you staying connected to what's happening and, and sort of getting input to form your own point of view? So, I mean, I'm always on Twitter, but I'm probably on Twitter more than I, I ever have been. And that's also leading me to, you know, listening to more podcasts than I usually do a lot of them, you know, as you might expect in the, the VC space. But ultimately, I think what's actually been the most important for me during this is is being home with my family and with my kid without childcare. Initially, that was really frustrating. I'm lucky in that, like, you know, I have enough control over my time. But what has been really weird is this is the first time in my life that I am not the sort of the the absent parent or the second parent. There's no longer any struggles to you know, no, I want mommy for this, or, you know, I can do everything. And I think for, for me, when it comes to like, where am I getting energy throughout of all of this? And what's sort of like the organizing grounding principle? It's like actually getting to be a good parent for the first time in my life and also realizing how hard that is. Like the fact that I'm only able to pull this off in this situation. And I think using that as, as a grounding point to then look at everything else that's happening out there 
everything I'm seeing on Twitter, everything I'm seeing within my portfolio company, that's another interesting area. I'm probably on, on the phone or texting with 10 different companies every day for five to 10 minute conversations. So just watching all of that evolve, it, it just feels like there's this giant world of, of like chaos that is swarming around me. But then in the middle is me just, you know, having a cuddle with my three-year-old who, you know, did not used to cuddle with me before this. Like, he really oh, likes what a gift. Now. That's yeah. a huge gift. Well, I think that context makes a ton of sense because then you can extrapolate that and know that everybody else is hunkering down on whatever's most important, whether it's their family or, you know, they're, they're coming internal in some way to, to get grounded, even as you're yeah. reading more and more tweets. So, totally. And the, the thing that I do really struggle with is like, I mean, I think I wish I could have like a really profound answer to you about like, what am I investing in? Like, what, what am I creating? But I just don't, outside of, of lending my brain to help founders in my portfolio solve problems, I find it hard to really lean into something and like create something meaning. Like it, it is, it's just a really, really difficult time. So who of the folks you're reading and following, who's had a particularly interesting and surprising point of view that, that you'd recommend to other people? This may not be a, applicable to, to everyone, but like, so, so for me as a, as a new, a new VC and specifically like a new VC, Founders Co-op only recently has started working with institutional LPs. We had a first one in our last fund. And now as we look towards future funds, we have more of that. And there's, there's a, a guy, Samir Kaji from First Republic, who is sort of the thought leader on how all of that world works. And he's kind of been one of the only very like direct and honest people out there about the real, the real challenges that are going on behind the scenes from everything from the, the fucked upness of the loan programs to the fucked upness of, of startups who have tens of millions of dollars in the bank, you know, taking advantage of that all the way to like, what are, what are the LPs who are all the way up the stack thinking? Cause I think that that's the thing that really fascinates me. And I think more founders should care about is that there are these, these allocators who then need to allocate to the VCs and the VCs then allocate to the startups. And right now, it's just super opaque about these people who are the ones who are really on the front line. Because if you're a startup, right, you're, you're raising money from a VC that already raised money a long time ago. But then if I'm that allocator, I have money in the markets that are getting these firsthand, secondhand, potentially thirdhand effects from what's happening in the public markets. Like for them, even things like oil today is affecting them directly. And so I think that I had previously felt that my world and the work that I did was a little bit more isolated from the rest of that. But, but through everything that he's been sharing, and I'm really looking forward to the study that they're going to be putting out on Thursday around how I think he interviewed like, or, or did a survey of about 500 general partners of how they're changing their behavior, where their concerns are, all this stuff. Like just trying to shine a light on how those allocators are thinking has just been beyond fascinating for me. And I think it's really their behavior that's going to dictate what our world is going to look like in one year or two years or three years. It's not, it's not like, it's not the sort of consumer trends and other stuff that you think that you're reading on Twitter and other areas. It's literally these people who are sitting on top of billions of dollars. Where are they going to want to allocate within the next year? And that's going to affect our world in two to three. I'll have to check that out. And that sounds interesting, even as an operator to understand, because like that whole chain 
impacts yeah, you. Yeah, and he and and Samir did a, a podcast with Semmel from from Haystack recently, and so that that's a good way to enter into that too. Perfect. All right, I'll put that in the show notes. All right, Aviel, this has been great. I've learned a ton from you as always. I want to wrap up with just a couple questions. I normally do the supersonic six, which is my nod to the the basketball team we once had. But I I just have three questions in the social distancing version. So the first one is who's another Seattle uh, founder, investor, or executive that you'd recommend folks follow or study? What I've really been enjoying is like, you know, Kirby Winfield, who's a founder turned now, now becoming institutional investor. And, you know, we're, we're, we're both going through a lot of this journey in a similar time, but I've really appreciated his, his perspective and transparency and honesty as he's been going through doing the work of raising his first fund and deploying his first fund. And so I think if he's somebody that, that you don't follow, you should. And, and also I, I, and especially if, if you like some, you know, nineties rap music, he's also a great person to follow. His firm's called Ascent, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm a big fan of his. We'll have to get him on the podcast too. And then what ask do you have for this audience? Audience, Anything this community can do to help you? Keep founding companies. Like, honestly, like one of the biggest fears that I have right now is like, we've been on one of the best trajectories. Like, I firmly believe that this is one of the best places in the world to found a company. All this talent has moved to Seattle to work at Facebook, Amazon, Google. And we were just starting to see the wave of these amazing people leaving and founding the companies. Look, it is a scary time to leave your healthcare and your paycheck. But if you look at the data, the, the, some of the most generationally impactful companies are founded right now during these really uncertain periods where there are these completely asymmetrical opportunities for you to do something amazing because of how much is changing and how rapidly it is. So like, please don't be afraid. Please keep founding companies. And, you know, us at Founders Golf and others in the region, we want to we wanna fund you to keep doing that. When I interviewed Glenn Kelman on the podcast, he literally pounded the table about this one. Found more <laughs> companies in Seattle. So I love that you're bringing that message back, especially at a time like this. Thank you for your insight. Aviel, it's been great. Where can people find you or follow you online? It is, there's only one place, A-V-I-E-L on Twitter, usually safe for work. All right. Expect some cursing at Aviel on Twitter. I will put that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. Good to talk with you. Thanks for having me, man.